This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Very soon, the U.S. Supreme Court will rule on what's arguably the most important case of the term. It's from Colorado, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The fundamental question it raises, can a religious baker who sees his creations as artistic speech refuse to make a custom cake for a gay wedding? As we await the decision, we're going to talk today about the likely swing vote in this case, Justice Anthony Kennedy. My guest is Adam Liptak, who covers the high court for The New York Times. He's on the phone from Washington. Hi, Adam. Hey, it's good to be here. Before we get your insights into Justice Kennedy, uh, will you remind us the potential stakes of this decision? What's well, a major clash between religious freedom and free speech on the one side and anti-discrimination principles on the other side. So um, this Lakewood, Colorado baker, Jack Phillips, earnestly believes that if he uh, is going to make a custom cake celebrating a same-sex wedding, uh, he's going to violate his uh, religious principles. Uh, the couple, uh, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, on the other hand, think that they are entitled, like anyone else, uh, to get service in a business open to the public. Colorado's passed an anti-discrimination law that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation, and they say that law should apply to anybody who chooses to open a business to the public. During oral arguments, and uh, even now, all eyes are indeed on Justice Kennedy, nominated, I'll say, by a Republican, President Reagan, in 1987. Uh, and you wrote that he is, quote, at once the court's most prominent defender of gay rights and its most committed supporter of free speech. Sort of the two issues in this case. Uh, that is the fundamental tension here, wouldn't you say? Yes, and he's going to be tugged in different directions. Uh, on the one hand, he has literally written every single one of the four gay rights landmarks in the history of the Supreme Court, so there's no greater judicial champion of gay rights than Justice Kennedy. On the other hand, he is the vote you know you're going to get in almost every free speech case. He wrote the Citizens United decision uh, giving uh, corporations the right to make independent expenditures in candidate elections, and he has consistently voted in cases about uh, hateful protests at military funerals, about uh, depictions of animal cruelty, about lying, about whether you've received uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor, always in the pro-First Amendment side. What are some of the landmarks in the gay rights cases? Um, when the court first struck down uh, laws making gay sex a crime uh, in a case called Lawrence versus Texas, he wrote that decision. Mm. When the court struck down a federal law that uh, banned giving federal benefits to uh, married same-sex couples in a case called Windsor. He wrote that decision. And, of course, uh, in 2013, he wrote the landmark decision finding a constitutional right to same-sex marriage in a case called Obergefell. So there's really literally nobody who's done more for the cause of gay rights in the courts than Justice Kennedy. And indeed, during oral arguments and masterpiece, it was clear that Kennedy had issues with both sides, Baker Jack Phillips and uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, which found Phillips had violated the state's anti-discrimination law. So here is Justice Kennedy on one hand. If, if you prevail, could uh, the bakery put a sign in its window, we do not bake cakes for gay weddings? Uh, Your Honor, I think that he could say he could, does not make custom-made wedding cakes for gay weddings, but most cakes and you would, would not, not cross the threshold. you would not consider that an, an, an affront uh, to the gay community? 
Uh, Your Honor, I I agree that there are dignity interests at stake here, and I would not minimize the dignity interests to Mr. Craig and Mr. Mullins one bit. So Kennedy pushing there on what the effect would be on gays and lesbians if the baker wins. But he went on to express frustration with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, uh, which again ruled in the couple's favor. The record showed that one commissioner might have had some disdain for religion. Counselor, tolerance... um is essential in a free society. And tolerance is most meaningful when it's mutual. Uh, It seems to me that the state in its position here has been neither tolerant nor respectful of Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs. So Adam Liptak of The New York Times, how do you think Justice Kennedy will balance the two concerns in this case? Well, I think he's really struggling with it. On the one hand, I don't know that he's going to want his obituary to say he was the leading champion of gay rights, but uh, footnote, uh, he allowed uh, this form of discrimination against gay couples. On the other hand, he's going to find it hard. He he likes the idea, as that last clip suggests, that in a tolerant society, you don't need to make a federal case out of anything, and people who, you know, uh, are frustrated with the court's ruling in favor of same-sex marriage might uh, he might think have an opportunity to, to dissent from it in minor ways. So it's going to it's going to jam him up. And one one possibility, which the last clip suggested, is if he thinks that Jack Phillips the baker didn't get a fair shake before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission because uh, there was bias against religious people in it, that he might send the case back, not decide the case, have have another go round before an unbiased panel. I don't think that's a likely outcome, but it's a possible one. It would be an incredibly narrow outcome, correct? That's right. No, that would essentially be a way not to decide the case. Uh-huh. What uh, What do you think is the most likely outcome if you were a betting man? Uh, if I had to bet, but this is really a 55-45 kind of bet, it's very close, and I'm not shy about making predictions if I, if I can. Uh, I think probably the couple wins. The couple wins? Yes. Uh, I I think that uh, anti-discrimination principles are really important. And here's a thought experiment. If it was an interracial couple that entered uh, a bakery and the baker were to say, I'm sorry, I don't approve of interracial marriage. I have a religious objection to it. That's not so far-fetched. Fifty years ago, people made arguments like that. I think many people would find that hard to swallow. And if you find that hard to swallow, you might also have the same problem with same-sex marriage arguments. I think, in fact, such a case made it to the high court decades ago. Uh, So lots of talk right now about whether Justice Kennedy will retire at the end of the term. I saw... One headline that said rumors of his retirement had kicked into overdrive. Any insight there for us? Well, it's the second year in a row. There were lots of rumors right around this time last year. In fact, maybe even stronger rumors with a little bit more evidence to them. And of course, he didn't step down. Uh, So he's 81. Uh, His days on the court are numbered. Uh, It's not out of the question that he goes. But I haven't seen any real evidence to suggest that he's going to go. And time is getting a little late. In in earlier retirements by now, we would have heard. So I wouldn't put it past him on the last day of the term to announce from the bench that he's had it. Um, But I think maybe he hangs on for a year or two more. While we have you, I thought I might ask about another justice, the newest one, Neil Gorsuch, who's from Colorado, nominated by President Trump. What stands out so far in this term from him? 
Well, a couple things. He is, as as predicted, and as a Trump appointee might, uh, voted uh, in a conservative direction and has made alliances with the justices on the right side of the court. Just yesterday, he wrote uh, a major decision in favor of employers who want to stamp out class actions from uh, the people they employ. Five to four decision, uh, Gorsuch writing for the court's conservatives. Uh, he's also uh, a vigorous colorful writer. He's only 50 years old. He'll be around for a long time. I think he's going to make a mark on the court. And he's committed to modes of constitutional interpretation associated with uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, originalism, trying to figure out what the original public meaning of the Constitution was. So I think he's likely to make a lasting mark on the court. You talked about that case that he was the lead author on, uh, dealing with workplace arbitration. How how unusual is it for a junior justice like that to to write what's a pretty major decision, correct? Quite unusual. It, it, other other justices have waited years to write, uh, you know, one of the half dozen biggest cases of the year. So that indicates that Chief Justice Roberts, who made the assignment, uh, entrusted something to uh, to a junior colleague because he thought he'd do a good job. Because he thought he'd do a good job. Uh, what else yes. do you look forward to from from Justice Gorsuch? What what will you be looking for? Um, well, he has occasionally, um, in in a minor case, but in a not so minor case, voted with the liberal wing. He will sometimes follow his constitutional theories to places that uh, might not map on to people of conservative policy preferences. He voted with uh, the court's four liberal members in a case concerning whether people can be deported for minor minor crimes. And he said, uh, maybe, but not under the statute in front of him, because that statute, he said, was too vague, and vague statutes are unconstitutional. So he, he may be capable of surprising us from time to time. Thanks for your time, Adam. This was really fun. Thank you. Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court for The New York Times. He joined us as we await a decision in a key case from Colorado, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Students pose tough questions about religion in a class at Chatfield High School in Littleton. But they don't ask their teacher. They ask faith leaders from the Christian community and Jewish, Buddhist, and Muslim, Hindu as well. Colorado Matters attended this semester's event, and over the next few days, we'll hear the ideas that these young people have wrestled with. Today, a question from senior Erica Hanshu. In some places, church and state are not separated. And in fact, in most schools today, we still tread lightly on the subjects and fear offending religion and religious aspects. Do you believe that school systems should teach pure scientific proven fact, or should we be faithful to the idea that other people have faith? First to answer was the Reverend Doug Hill of Abiding Hope Church in Littleton. It is Evangelical Lutheran. A friend of mine named Martin Marty, yes, his mother named him, same first name as his last name. (laughs) Uh, He's a church historian, Lutheran church historian, and He wrote a book on education toward the end of the 20th century saying that every culture in the world throughout history has had some level of spirituality. And what we've done in the name of liberty and freedom is factored spirituality out of education as though it's not an aspect of our humanity. And what we're doing then is we're raising 
humans to be spiritually ignorant because spirituality is a, a huge part of our being. What spirituality is to me is it is the aspect of interconnectedness with God and one another. And if we're creating a culture or society that's hugely spiritually ignorant, then we don't have the tools to ask ourselves, why should we do certain things? Why should we make bombs that could destroy the earth? Why should we be eradicating species through climate change, these kinds of things? We don't have the moral or ethical toolkit to address those kinds of issues. The question becomes, how can we reintroduce spiritual education into school in a way that welcomes and includes all, that's not exclusive. I think the fear was, you know, is it going to be a Christian level of spirituality? Is it going to be a Jewish level of spirituality? You know, how are we going to teach it? I think what your teacher has done, Mr. Swanicorn, is figure out how to do it in an equitable manner so that no one is excluded and every voice can be included. My hope in participating in this panel is that more schools will replicate this model of spiritual education so that we have a, a shared level of morality, shared values, if you will, to answer really difficult questions that then guide what we do as a society. It's worth noting that atheists weren't represented on the panel. Now, from the Jewish point of view, we heard it from Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadal of Wisdom House Denver, Booth Nadal's group focuses on interfaith gatherings. He spoke, followed by Buddhist Lisa Pettit. I think a problem is, in our world, is religion. And so we think, like, do I want religion taught in public schools? No, I don't. But religion is a vehicle for something deeper that we might call spirituality. And I very much agree with what Pastor Doug just said, that By keeping religion out of the schools, we have inadvertently not educated souls. And so I would love to see us go deeper and understand, so what is the spirit that underlies all religions? And how does that teach us how to live our lives? How does that teach us how to make daily choices just as an individual in my life, let alone the choices I make in terms of politics or anything else? I would just add one um, more thing about that, which was uh, an interview I heard with the Dalai Lama where he talked about the importance of us creating a secular ethic. And I think that's kind of what we're, it might be a spiritual ethic, where we have this sort of agreed upon, you know, here's what humanity is, and this is how we best um, interact and live together. Lisa Pettit of the Compassionate Dharma Cloud Monastery in Morrison. We'll hear more from her as the week goes on. She's one of five faith leaders who answered student questions at Chatfield High School in Littleton. The Interfaith Forum is a fixture of the school's contemporary World Issues class. Think about your morning routine. Maybe you showered, washed your hair, applied some lotion or deodorant. Turns out those personal care products can actually leave a plume of chemicals around you that scientists can measure. And they found that some of that stuff emitted from your body is on par with what comes out of a car's tailpipe. 
Matt Coggan is an atmospheric scientist in Boulder. His team recorded these emissions, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. You didn't set out to find these chemical compounds at first. Uh, what was it you were studying that you happened upon this? Yeah, so we were just kind of measuring Boulder air, uh, almost like a survey, and we were specifically looking for biomass burning or residential wood smoke. Okay. Um, so we were out there looking for you know wintertime emissions, and we saw a signal in our instrument that kind of popped out. We never really expected to see something where we saw it in our instrument, and it's unique. It has, unlike most organic compounds that have carbon, hydrogen, and oxygens, this also had silicon, and that silicon is added um, to give the compound kind of a silky, smooth feeling. Okay, which you'd want maybe out of a lotion or shampoo or something. Exactly. And um, it's a compound called D5-siloxane. So if you look on your products, you might see it as D5-siloxane, cyclopentasiloxane. has a number of names. This appears in the ingredients list on the back of my uh, uh, herbal naturals bottle or something. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And um, it's added primarily for uh, deodorants and hair gels. Um, most of the production in the U.S. goes into these products. And we were out there measuring, and we saw it peak during traffic periods. And it was peculiar because normally when you see compounds in the atmosphere peak during these traffic periods, you assume that they come from vehicles. Right. It's tailed by the emissions. Exactly. But what it actually is coming from is from the people inside the car. So the people inside the car are emitting their deodorants, their hair gels, their lotions, those mix with tailpipe emissions, and then that's what we are detecting. So you had to isolate this compound, find that it wasn't, in fact, from the tailpipes, that it was from the people right. in the car. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I, I need to ask a big so what. I, I don't want to be alarmist here and say you are emitting as much, you know, polluting uh, chemical plume as, say, the, the tailpipe of your Nissan or, you know, GMC Jimmy. Uh, what is the so what here? Yeah, the, the big point is that um, air pollution in urban areas has changed over decades. So in the 1960s, uh, cars were the predominant um, source of pollution. Mm -hmm. Think about Los Angeles, right? In the 1960s, um, smog was so thick that if you were playing baseball, you wouldn't be able to see the outfield, right? I mean, it was so bad, and it was largely due to vehicles. But we've had this huge success story that over the past you know, 40, 50 years, we've reduced pollution from vehicles, and now other sources are starting to matter, like our deodorants, our hair gels, our cleaners, our consumer products. And so the compound that we measured in Boulder is an indication of that. So it is a marker for these, for these consumer products, and these consumer products are now, now starting to impact what we think to be um, ozone pollution and aerosol pollution which are have big major health impacts. Okay, we see ozone alerts on those sort of jumbotrons above the highway that tell us, you know, to be careful about when we run our lawnmowers or when we fill up our tanks, for instance. Uh, ozone is the result of a sort of chemical soup bonding, I think, with sunlight. And so the ingredient in some of our personal care products can be an ingredient in creating ozone? Exactly, exactly. And our work supports work in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles is kind of the, the microcosm that we study because we, we understand pollution in Los Angeles over decades. It's been really well studied in Ex L.A. Exactly. And a recent study that came out um, from a colleague on the paper showed that 
of the petrochemical industry, of all the ways that we use petrochemicals when we pull them out of the ground, consumer products are now contributing as much pollution as um, vehicle exhaust every year. And that's kind of the big piece. And so our study is is supporting that. Ozone is a problem for those with uh, suppressed immune systems. And with asthma, for instance, it can lead to health problems. Right. It can. Yeah. I guess I want to ask point blank, is my deodorant making me sick or is it just that it might contribute to the right conditions that could make some people sick who are vulnerable? Yeah, that that is something that um, we are trying to learn more about. Okay. So we can measure the primary emissions so we can see these compounds being emitted, but we don't necessarily know what they're doing downwind yet. And that's that's what this these studies are trying to point to is that we need to look at these compounds in more depth and try to understand how do they react in the atmosphere and contribute to ozone and particulate matter formation. Okay, so there are lots more questions to answer. That's right. True of so much research. That's right. You you never just have a definitive answer. You have we, more questions. We'd be out of a job. So Has this changed perhaps what products you use yourself? Um, it has made me more cognizant of what I'm using. Okay. And... Um, you know, I I won't say that I've gone all natural yet. Um, you know, my fiance really likes that I wear deodorant uh-huh. as well as my... Uh, as, I appreciate that too. Yeah, We're in the same studio together. But I am thinking about how much I'm using and I look at my products and I, I just have an understanding now. So I'm more aware. Is there something specific? I mean, obviously the ingredient that you mentioned, say it again. Uh, D5-siloxane. D5-siloxane. Are there other things I should be looking for in the ingredients list? And is your recommendation at this point to avoid that or that you can't yet say, don't buy products with this? Right. We So D5-siloxane um, isn't our biggest concern. We okay. actually, we aren't even sure that it really contributes to ozone or, or aerosol pollution. What it is, though, is like a fingerprint. So atmospheric scientists are almost like CSI agents, right? So we go out into the atmosphere and we look for clues to figure out who done it, who's contributed to pollution. And so when we go out there, we try to figure out um, what are compounds that are indicative of this source of pollution. D5 lasts a long time in the atmosphere, so that means we can track it a long way downwind. And so if we see this compound, we know that the air parcel that we measured must contain consumer products, personal care products. And so we're interested in what other compounds are associated with that. Ah. What other compounds are also emitted with D5-siloxane? I see. And that is among the other questions you want to answer here. Right. And and so don't take this conversation as... Uh, some stern warning from the government or even from your group of scientists uh, that you ought to avoid certain products. Although I imagine that there will be great interest in your future research among manufacturers and regulators. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that um, there will be quite a bit of interest um, in figuring out what this stuff does downwind. Okay, so you saw this in Boulder. Mm -hmm. And... um, in all fairness to Boulder, it's it's not, you know, the biggest city in the world. Right. Would you like to look at whether these sort of personal hygiene plumes are happening in a in a Los Angeles, in a New York? That's right. And we actually started doing that. So think about Boulder. It's about 100,000 people over a 60 square kilometer area. Manhattan, a million people in a 60 square kilometer area. Yeah. So if you really want to see these things, you have to go where the people are. And so this March, we did go out to New York City to try and measure these compounds in, in greater detail. 
And we've seen compounds we've never measured before. And so now we have to go through all that data and try to figure out where are all these compounds coming from, what industries are they associated with, and then try to quantify their emissions. Right. Or is it that New Yorkers are using different personal care products? Totally. That could be okay. possible, right? And it could be different in different countries as well. And that's um, something that our uh, international colleagues will be interested in too. This is fascinating. I think what I hear you saying is that as tailpipe emissions have gotten under control in this country, it has in a way focused attention on other sources. That's right. And perhaps that there is a move after this to say, okay, what's the next frontier in lowering emissions and I guess thus improving public health? Right. That's 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 it. You know, I think the the best analogy that I can give is um, imagine that you're in your home and you're burning a, your favorite scented candle okay. and your wet dog walks in and the room just smells of wet dog, right? That was what was happening in the 1960s. Now, with regulation, we reduced emissions of cars, and so we kicked the dog out of the room. And now we're starting to see all the other things that are in the background, all these other things that we hadn't considered being important. And so now we have to, we have to start thinking, um, what, what are these compounds doing and what are they what are they doing downwind and how are they affecting people's health? I like the dog metaphor yeah. for automobiles. And thanks for wearing deodorant today. You're welcome. That's Matthew Coggin. He's an atmospheric scientist with CU Boulder and NOAA. His latest study of personal hygiene products ran in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And now for a sound of summer. Ah, the sizzle of a barbecue. Bert Fraser of Fruta has turned a love of barbecue into a thriving enterprise. He sells bits of wood to grilling fanatics who want to add extra flavor to brisket and ribs. He also dispenses loads of grilling advice to both amateurs and professionals from his Fruta wood and barbecue supply business. Fraser joins us from our studio in Grand Junction as part of Five Stars to Food Trucks, our culinary series in Colorado. And hi, Bert. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You got your start as a woodchunk entrepreneur when you hacked up some cherry wood, I understand, eight years ago, sold it on eBay. What incarnation prompted you to do that? Um, just uh, the inability to find some uh, woods locally uh, during the wintertime um, in the uh, retail stores. And why were you so interested in wood as an ingredient for maybe your own barbecuing? Um, wood definitely changes the flavor of not only meats, but also cheeses and nuts uh, when you smoke them. And um, each different variety of wood will produce its own unique flavor uh, to uh, each one of those that I previously mentioned, the cheeses and, and meats, as well as nuts and other items that you smoke with them. Tell me more about that time in your life when you decided to, to sort of try the chunks on your own. What led you to that moment? Um, heck, it probably started uh, when I was 17 years old, 40 years ago, um, when my parents brought me home a uh, electric smoker. Um, we moved from Grand Junction out to California along the uh, uh, along the coast, and met a gentleman who uh, was 
had a fishing boat and we'd go out salmon fishing all the time and I was coming home with loads of, loads of salmon. We needed to figure out what to do with it. So uh, uh, about 40 years ago, uh, yesterday, my parents brought me home a smoker huh. and uh, put wood on that and I've been hooked to it ever since. Okay. Not, not the gift you normally think of giving a young person, a smoker. <laughs> <laughs> you ship more than a ton of wood chips and chunks per day to customers across the country. I'll just say this is in such stark contrast to how my family grilled. It was always, you know, Kingsford charcoal. Uh, it seems that there's a thriving market for wood to throw on the Barbie, I guess, huh? Yeah, um, there is. You know, um, everybody uh, or not everybody has access to every type of wood out there. Uh, each part of the country has its own uh, geography or whatever, and uh, only certain trees will grow in certain parts of the country. And so in order for them to change up the variety of the flavor of the meat, they have to look for sources outside of the area where that isn't ready of available to them or locally available to them. Um, that's why we've brought in uh, woods from, you know, not only locally here out of the Grand Valley, out of the fruit bowl that we have here, but also outside uh, areas uh, that gives us uh, 24 different varieties of wood all in one location. And people can get anything from uh, five pounds of bourbon Merlot barrel wood all the way up to, you know, thousands of pounds. We shipped out a 40,000 pound order of, uh, of wood to a gentlemen in uh in minnesota so um got large and small let me ask about some of the varieties you just talked about there so you said shipping wood out from the grand valley the fruit bowl there that is to say fruit tree wood like what Correct. Yeah. Um, apple, peach, cherry, apricot, plum, um, uh, even grapevines are in the local area. Grapevines. You can smoke grapevines. Oh, absolutely. Uh, grapevine is great to uh, be used on uh, uh, stuff like lamb as well as uh, turkey. And then you said bourbon Merlot barrels. So that's obviously chipping up, uh, what are those, wine barrels as opposed to directly from trees. Yeah, they're actually barrels that had uh, bourbon in them for uh, about seven years. And then immediately after the bourbon was taken out, they were put to a uh, a winery. And the winery put Merlot wine in them, a local winery here, put uh, Merlot wine in them and aged it for about nine months. And then uh, once they're done aging it and they take and bottle the Merlot wine up, um, they call us up. We purchase the barrels from them and then we cut it up. And I tell you what... Um, Fabulous, fabulous flavor, um, especially on uh, on a beef brisket or even on uh, on pork loins. Fascinating. Okay, so if you chop up apple wood or wood from an apple tree, does that mean necessarily that everything will taste like apple? Is it so literal that the tree would taste like the fruit? No, that's a lot of misconception that some people have. Okay. Um, you're not going to get, uh, you know, your uh, your pork tasting like peach if you use peach wood on it. Just each individual flavor or variety of wood has its unique flavor for it. Um, almond is a little bit nutty as, as well as pecan has a little bit of nutty flavor, um, whereas your fruit woods have a more of a sweeter flavor to them. You have turned wood chunks into a storefront, an internet business. Uh, you employ five people. And I just want to say that Washington Post barbecue columnist Jim Shaheen has recommended your wood. I, I'm curious, though, can, can I use wood on any grill, like even a gas grill? Who, who's the market for this? 
Um, anybody that's actually cooking on a grill, whether it's electric, propane, gas, uh, it's a stick burner, which is basically using all wood, or using just charcoal, um, you can use wood on anything, uh, on any grill. Um, uh, my advice is use wood sparingly, um, so that way you don't oversmoke and create a, uh, a bitter buildup on your, on your meats. There is such a thing as too much. Correct. Start out with a little bit and then work your way up. If it doesn't enough smoke flavor, add a little bit more at a time the next time you cook and then until it gets to the right amount of smoke that you're looking for. What wood is really trendy now? Uh, Right now, the wood that we sell the most of is called a Texas Post Oak. Uh, It comes up out of uh, central, east central Texas. Um, And uh, there's a gentleman in uh, in Austin, Texas, Aaron Franklin, who has Franklin's Barbecue. And he's been the barbecue guru for the last seven years, number one guy in Texas. And uh, the barbecue world out there is kind of a copycat. What everybody else is doing is making them successful. Everybody wants to try that. So right now, um, we're probably the only... Uh, uh, supplier in the country that has small quantities of, of uh, Texas Post Oak that will ship it. Texas Post Oak. And why, why do you think it's so popular? Um, it has a very unique flavor. Um, it's not very strong, but uh, when you use it on your brisket, it tends to stay on your palate a little while longer than most smokes. But like again, it's not a heavy smoke. It's just kind of like biting into a piece of brisket, tasting the flavor, and going, oh, that's nice and smoky. And then a few minutes later, after you're done chewing, you're going, I really like that smoke flavor because it's just a mild, subtle flavor that kind of lingers, lingers on. Do you shudder at the idea of liquid smoke? Um, that's not my vocabulary. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with barbecue woodchunk guru, I didn't know there was such a thing until we met Bert Fraser. He's the owner of Fruta Wood and Barbecue Supply on the Western Slope. He joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Why don't we run through a few common barbecue foods and maybe get some suggestions for what wood people might use. So chicken. Okay. Um, one of the um, – it's nothing written in stone, but what I like to uh, give people has a general guideline when they're uh, when they're smoking their meats, um, is use your fruit woods on your white meats. Um, so your apples, your peach, your cherries, your oh. grapes, uh, orange, and stuff like that. Use that on your your, your chicken and your pork. Uh, when it comes to red meats and wild games, convert over to your uh, your nut woods, uh, your stuff like your, your pecans, your almonds, uh, stuff like hickory, uh, even mesquite uh, like that. Um, Pecan would probably be the only exception. Pecan is kind of like it's mild enough for to use on a white meat, uh, but heavy enough to use on the red meat and produce still produce a great flavor. What about vegetables? Oh, definitely vegetables. Um, go light again. Uh, use some lighter woods like the, the fruit woods or the pecans on there. Uh, don't smoke your vegetables for long periods of time because they uh, will take on uh, smoke fairly quickly. Uh, the same as if you're going to do type of um, uh, like a pizzas or something like that on your grills. Uh, use a lighter wood like apple or oak, something that's not going to be too heavy and over smoking. Okay. So I'm hearing uh, a theme here, which is don't overdo it. I wonder if you can taste, say, a piece of fish or a piece of meat and say, this was smoked with such and such a wood. 
Um, I can say because I've got a very sensitive palate. I can taste different uh, um, flavors of wood. I um, I had a gentleman that smoked some salmon uh, at a local restaurant, and um, I called him over. He was a, uh, the chef, and I called him over, and I told him, I said, you know, I said, I can taste that peach wood in there, and there's something else that's in there. I said, it's very sweet. And I said, I want to kind of push it towards a way of maple flavor in there. I says, what else did you smoke with it besides peach? And he told me, he says, it was, you're correct, it was peach and maple that I smoked that salmon with. And I said, I thought so. I said, it was just a really outstanding flavor. I had never thought that uh, the salmon that uh, would taste that good because I'm always usually using uh, an alder and a little bit of hickory when I do my salmon. So it was a good change of taste. Interesting. You're like a sommelier of wood chunks. Uh, before we go... What are common, just like general barbecuing, grilling mistakes people make? Maybe the top two. Um, Oversmoking, using too much wood, okay. and then not controlling their temperatures. Um, uh, try to get away from the uh, internet where the internet says that you should cook a piece of meat for a certain period of time per pound. Um, that's a misconception. Your two best friends are going to be a meat thermometer and a grill thermometer, knowing what the temperatures of your grill is and knowing what the temperature of your meat is. And once the meat hits a certain internal temperature, um, uh, it's done. It could be sometimes a pork shoulder will be done in eight hours. Sometimes it'll take 14 hours. It all depends on how long it takes for that uh, the center of that, re- that meat to reach that internal temperature. Well, Bert, thanks so much. I feel ready for summer. Okay. It's barbecue woodchunk guru, Bert Frazier. He's the owner of Fruita Wood and Barbecue Supply, and he joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Husband and husband Matt and Blue have a big following on YouTube, over a quarter of a million subscribers. Actor Matt Dallas used to have a show on ABC Family and musician Blue Hamilton vlog about their daily lives, whether it's home improvement or raising a kid. And recently, their videos started featuring Colorado. Where are we at? So that was the Ice Castles in Dillon, Colorado. Colorful, cold. The little igloo was fun. Did you actually get back in there? No, because by the time I went to go in, you guys were coming out. The reason Colorado now plays prominently? The couple has moved here to Metro Denver with their four-year-old son, Crow. Dallas is out with a new film, Along Came the Devil, and the pair talked to me about their lives here earlier this year. For someone who's never seen one of your videos, they often start with four words. Peace to the world. Peace to the world. Uh, Tell me about the decision to open up your lives to YouTube. This was before Crow came into your lives. Give us a sense of why. Yeah, I think we originally started our YouTube channel just because we wanted to have a platform where or a, a, a creative space where we could essentially sort of just create or do whatever we wanted and be able to connect with people all over the world and sort of share our story and like put some good vibes out into the world. How would you answer that? I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Was this a discussion when a couple says we're going to put our lives to the world? Yeah. I mean, I, I pressured... Matt for a long time to start a YouTube channel. 
because <clears throat> I thought there was something for him to connect with his fan base as well, uh, just being a creative person. And it, I think it just evolved over time into what it is today. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, is like Blue, orig- Blue and I originally uh, sort of bonded like in early on in our relationship over creating and just making things together, where, whether it meant like building birdhouses or whatever. So this was an opportunity for us to like really create and, I don't know, try and, I don't know, share something a little bit more personal and hopefully special with the world. I mean, it occurs to me that you, Matt, had had a lot of experience with like big television, you know, and corporate television and large productions. And this is a way of being more of a maker yourself uh, in contrast to, you know, to the agents and the, the... the gaffers and all that. Yeah, that actually uh, that actually was a large part of it as well. It's like having been in Los Angeles for over a decade and being in like the grind of auditioning, you know, seven days a week and just like go uh, just the go, go, go. It was an opportunity for us to sort of like take control of our creative destiny and to not have to, I don't know, put our sort of put it all into somebody else's hands. So why the move to Colorado? You had been in Los Angeles, Arizona for a time. Well, I'm originally from Colorado. I'm from Florissant, so I've always wanted to come back here. Uh, But I think that we were in L.A. and it just uh, felt like it was time to move on. Felt like it wasn't a right fit for our family. Uh, We had lived in there for L.A. for like 20 years, I think. We lived there for a long time. Uh, so it was just, we wanted a place where there was lots of activities to do, that the people were cool. The environment was beautiful and Colorado has always been home to me, but. And as you know, you're not alone in feeling that about Colorado or in moving here for that matter. Uh, your son Crow is often part of your videos. Um, and you spoke about this in a video from 2016. We got a call basically saying, look, we have a kid that needs a place to stay. We were told that this kid was going to be placed with us as a foster situation, temporary. During the day, we got another phone call, and that phone call was, no, he's coming to live with you, and we only want to put him in a home that wants to adopt. Are you willing to adopt this kid? And we had to give a yes or no answer right then without seeing the kid, Without knowing anything other than his age and that he was healthy, we didn't know his background, nothing about it. Um, and so we basically looked at each other and we said, "Yeah." You can't see Matt looking lovingly into Blue's eyes as they listen <laughs> as they listen to that that clip. It's quite the leap, isn't it? I mean, you thought maybe we'll foster, then you understand this is going to be adoption, and the stork comes and drops. A child like that, and you have to be ready. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, I think our lives have been just a series of things that the universe pushes us towards. And in that scenario, I think it was just, we just knew, yes, we're going to take this challenge, we're going to do it. Yeah, I think a lot, most of the things in our lives have come from sort of circumstances where like that, where it's just been about taking the leap into the think less and act more and i think like even with our youtube channel because i have a tendency to overthink everything Everything. and especially coming from the entertainment and being an actor i was like no i can't put my life out into the internet and and but eventually it was like i just had to i don't know just sort of let go and take the leap and i feel like the same happened with crow the same happened with moving to colorado and i feel like most anything and it's always led us to I don't know, great things. Yeah, It's in such stark contrast to what a lot of people, I think, 
do ahead of having a child or at least think about doing, which is looking at the budget and making sure everything is in line and really being um, almost methodical about it. Yeah, and we did that. Okay. We, we did, we did um, for the most part, but I feel like... We... With any time, especially like with having kids, you're never going to feel ready. Uh-huh. So you just, you get as prepared as you can, and then you say yes. Uh, Matt, people may remember you from the ABC family TV show, Kyle XY. It aired from 2006 to 2009. I've never seen anyone like Kyle before. He can't understand the simplest things, but does calculus like it's two plus two. Kyle is not human. How did you do that? What? You jumped off a roof. Tell me he's not an alien. Who is Kyle XY? He was you. Uh, And uh, Blue, you're a musician. Your latest single is called Supermoon. You're very interesting. I'm, I'm feeling like an underachiever as I go through all that you're involved in. Are you gay role models? Ooh, I mean, that's a tough one. I don't think we ever, like, set out to be gay role models. We've certainly I, never talked about it. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Like, I hope that we can, in sharing our stories, will inspire people to sort of, I don't know. Live their life being true to themselves and, and kind to other people. You know what I mean? That's what the mission is. I'm glad you said true to themselves. Because isn't there an aspect of putting your life on YouTube in which you are going to make it look a little bit better than it actually is? As social media in general. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that the, the, it is funny because there are qu- quite a bit of like gay families and I mean just families in general that have YouTube channels but we too try to show the sort of like everyday like some there's a lot of sort of bickering on our channel and of course it's like (laughs) in real life it's much it's even more but uh, but we too try to at least show it a little bit so that it feels real and that we can show that we are real people and we do have real arguments and I don't know yeah and uh, you know what I think that when you know, there's people throughout history that I look up to and the things that I remember about them are the good that they do. Uh, we've all done bad or, you know, but I think it is about putting the positive out there and influencing through positive. Blue Hamilton and Matt Dallas, they live in the Denver area with their son Crow. Dallas has a film in the works, Along Came the Devil. We spoke earlier this year. Finally today, a Denver band that met through Craigslist. Its members moved to Colorado from Michigan, Georgia, and elsewhere, met online, and bonded over a love of classic country rock. Their band is called Last of the Easy Riders, and their debut album is titled Unto the Earth. Let's hear them in the CPR Performance Studio with Silver Canyon. I left my family home I was searching for something peaceful And what I found was gold Easy days in the Rockies Always 
Last of the easy riders in the CPR performance studio with the track Silver Canyon takes you to a different time, it feels like. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.